and I was so disenchanted with experience because there was no real room for creativity there. There was no actual design and and uh, creation of, of 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 anything. It was more maintenance and repair. And I remember thinking to myself when I was done with that in, with that internship that I am not going to practice as an electrical engineer. Welcome to a new episode of the African Developers Podcast. I am Kesir, your host. Today we have our first guest from Uganda. James Alituhikia is the Chief Technical Officer at ChapChap Africa. ChapChap Africa is a fintech company based in Kampala. James, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Kesir. I'm really excited about this interview because we've been we've been trying to do this for for a long time now, but we've both been very busy. Yeah. <laughs> Who are you, James? How do you introduce yourself to people? Uh, so I normally introduce myself as a, as a as a software developer first and foremost. Yeah, because my name is James Ayrika, and software development is the thing I would say I do. Uh, but currently, I have been I have been working as the chief technical officer at ChapChap Africa Limited, and as you said. Uh, ChapChap Africa, we, we currently run our mobile payments platform here in Uganda, that, uh, which we like to say enables our users to, to spend as they earn. So that's kind of the, the, the tagline we have for that product. So we'll get more into ChapChap itself, the company and the product. But I'm curious about your, your, your journey leading to ChapChap Africa. Like, where did you go to school? How did you get into programming? Um, so I actually studied at Macquarie University, but I trained as an electrical engineer originally. What is Macquarie University? Yeah, so Macquarie University is a, it's a university here. It's the biggest university in, Kampa, in Uganda as a whole. Yes, yeah, so I trained uh, as a, an electrical engineer. So I did a Bachelor of Science degree in electrical engineering at Macquarie University originally. And, uh, and uh, while, I was, while I was studying, my brother had, a, a, had a, a website company that he used to run. And he asked me to help him do some work for him on the side. And uh, I was getting, at that time, I was probably in my second year at school. And uh, I was getting a bit frustrated with the, with the course I was doing because I felt like there was no real opportunity to express any sort of creativity in the course we were doing. So at this time, I began working with my brother's website on the side as a part-time, as a part-time job doing websites. And mostly I would do things in, a, in a Joomla, PHP, if you're familiar. And uh, yeah, and so during that time, I went and did, uh, I also went and did internship at an electric at a power electrical company and I was so disenchanted with experience because there was no real room for creativity there there was no actual design and and uh, creation of, 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 of anything it was more maintenance and repair and I remember thinking to myself when I was done with that in, with that internship that I am not going to practice as an electrical engineer uh, that's when I decided that I am not going to do that anymore and so I I did finish the course, but I didn't. I never practiced as that. What I eventually did, because in electrical engineering we did have a small, we did have about one course unit in C. Was C, and uh, once we did that, I I decided to to go deeper and do C plus plus, and then do Java. And when I got an opportunity, I did an internship at a company that was doing a Java Java software development. When I did internship there, they decided to keep me on full time, and 
and that is where my journey began as a software developer. So I eventually, yeah, so I eventually, uh, I, I eventually moved on from that company to another, uh, in, until eventually I found myself at ChapChap. Uh, but the main reason I actually switched to software development was because I felt it was the easiest way in the environment that we are in here in Kampala to express creativity without necessarily requiring the resources that you would need in other professions. Uh, by this, I mean, if you actually want to write code, all you need is a laptop and maybe some internet, and that's it. And all the resources you want will be online somewhere. So it's, you don't require so much as compared to other other fields where if say I wanted to create something in, in electronics, I would need a lab, I would need the expertise, I would need all sorts of raw materials and things like that. And it is just a, it was a steep, steep, steep hill to climb. But the software, the software route, the software route is much easier to learn on your own and you don't need to depend on very many external factors to actually learn to do it. So I ended up specializing in software development because of that. I see. How did you initially decide to become a, an electrical engineer? What was your reasoning? So here in Uganda, there's a, uh, there's a selection process that goes on. Once you do a secondary school education, uh, you, do a, you, you do a number of choices that the government can sponsor you for at university. Because a university is a bit expensive, you cannot pay on your own. So the government will sponsor the students who pass highly. So, uh, so, the, so normally it's, it's kind of a tradition or it's kind of the norm that uh, you, the, you, give, you, you fill in some forms and you put in the choices that you're going to, that you would prefer to do. And normally when you're putting in these choices, you start by putting in the most competitive, the most competitive courses because, uh, because the higher the points you get, the more, the, the easier it is for you to get those courses. And also probably because of the, I would say the prestige surrounding some of those courses. So at the time, um, I would say the reason why I chose electrical engineering was one because when I was filling in those forms and I looked at the list of courses being being uh, sponsored by the government, it was the first one on the list in terms of the, the number of points you would require. And two, it felt like uh, it was wide enough to give me uh, a chance to explore what I could do with technology. Um, so when I did my secondary exams, I, I passed quite highly, and that was the course that was given to me. They said, yes, you passed highly, so we're going to sponsor you for electrical engineering. So, so that is how I ended up doing electrical engineering in the first place. Cool. So then you, you switched to software development, and then you finally ended up at ChapChap. Were you hired at ChapChap as the CTO? Like, did you start in that position? Yeah, I actually I started out as the lead developer. So, so the, the so the founders of uh, of ChapChap met me at a meetup here in Kampala, uh, and they were discussing the idea that they had. And so originally they had they had been working with a with an outsourced team from from Russia. Uh, but they were a bit disenchanted with the with the work they were with the distance and the communication and the work that was being churned out. So they had a discussion with me about the idea and we exchanged a few a few things about it and I told them how it could be much better and what they should think about doing to make it uh, to make it more 
to make it more usable, to make it more efficient, to make it better for the user. Actually, I remember the exact the, my conversation with them centered around the fact that it is important. I kept telling them it is important for their for their solution to be to be fast because here the internet connection is not that good and users get they get uh, they're not very patient because of that. They're not very patient with new solutions because the the internet is not good. It's not reliable. It is slow and sometimes on and off. So it is important that your solution is robust and resilient because it is going to have to deal with something like that. I remember sharing that with them and they on the following day they contacted me and asked me if I could actually help them develop that. So I joined them as this lead developer and then eventually I became a CTO. And back then, how many developers were you leading? So back then it was uh, it was me and uh, three other developers three other developers so yeah so there was a there was a there was a guy who specialized in android and uh, ios development mobile development mostly and then uh, there was a, a web a guy who was uh, who was doing a lot of web stuff i would say he was his specialty was was web programming and uh, then there was another guy who was doing the back who was specialty was back end development okay so you started with a team of three what, what does the team look like today so the team now is about, we're about now, uh, we have expanded to about, I would say, yeah, we're about maybe 10 guys now. That's impressive. So now that you have 10 people on your team, like how have your responsibility changed from being a quote-unquote lead developer to being a CTO? So what were your responsibilities before and what are your responsibilities now? And how did you have to adapt? So before I had maybe a little bit of experience in a leadership position, but mostly my experience was in writing code and 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 that was mostly it so moving from that to someone who has to actually give technical direction was something that i found quite interesting but beyond that what i found a bit challenging was the relationships that you have to develop with the people you work with especially the developers and creating that synergy uh, originally i remember we had a number of developers who were working offsite and it became a challenge for us to make sure that they met their goals and met their deadlines and met their uh, the the things that they're supposed to do. Because you have maybe daily stand-up meetings and these guys are doing them remotely. Sometimes they are not there. Other times they are. Other times they are not. Uh, they're not easy to get in touch with. And you have this core group of developers who you're working with on site, and the synergy with them is stronger. And so there was a bit of a disconnect. And I guess that was the biggest challenge that I had, uh, making sure that there was, a, there, was, uh, there was synergy, even with the developers who were not with us. Yeah, but uh, looking back, I would say the thing, I, the thing I learned the most from that experience of moving from simply uh, heading the development team to CTO would be... Uh, to how to manage uh, the relationships with people and how to communicate and how to satisfy people who are working in a team. And instead of being a, a quote-unquote boss, uh, being the, the facilitator of, uh, of what I would call maybe facilitating the work, making sure that things keep moving and that everyone is happy in the working environment that you have set for them. So I think uh, I always thought that, oh, yeah, so you're a boss and that's... But it, it, it's, it is... a uh, it is, it is a tightrope you walk between making sure that everyone 
in the working environment is happy and because when because when they're happy that's when they do their best work so walk me through your your typical day as a CTO of chap chap so I wake up in the morning typically at around outside I wake up at around uh, 6 6 30 every day uh, and uh, from that moment I I do my normal I I, I would say my preparations for the day and then I, I head into work, which is about, I would say, eight kilometers from where I stay. So it doesn't take me long to get to work. Uh, as soon as I get to work, there is a, there's a meeting we normally have with, uh, with the head of operations and the managing director uh, to just uh, set, set for the day. A few, a few maybe targets and a few communication issues are set out. Uh, and then I, I get to work. So I normally go through my emails and stuff like that after that. And and uh, typically at that point, I would not write any code. Uh, but at around 11.30, we have our, our daily stand-up meeting. So, But that depends on the, the current group that I'm in because we have normally two different different groups, different uh, scrum groups, I would call them. So currently I'm part of one and I'm actually not the scrum master, someone else. Uh, but yes, so I attend the daily, and after that, normally the entire afternoon. After that, normally if everything goes well, I'm typically writing code. But uh, aside from that, uh, I would be probably receiving the high level because we normally have uh, an engineer on support every day, and sometimes those issues spill over. He escalates them higher up. And sometimes they land on my desk, and sometimes it might be require me to to step in and and see what we can do to fix those problems yeah but that's typically my day so i would probably spend the afternoon writing code and that's what i enjoy doing the most actually and if i get carried away probably to the evening but normally i try to leave office by around 6 6 30 as well and that's it for the day uh, can you tell me a little bit about the, your your tech stack what technologies are you using at chop chop our back end is mostly built in uh, is mostly built in Elang and Java. But oh, interesting. Yeah, but mostly mostly Elang or Elang as you'd call it because uh, of the obvious advantages it gives us and uh, our front end. So so the back end communicates with uh, the front end uh, app, which is uh, an Android application, an iOS application, and a web a web application and a desktop application. So the Android application is written in Java and Kotlin, and uh, the iOS application is written in Swift, of course, and the web is written in uh, is written in uh, is written in Angular Express, yeah, is written in Angular and Express and the normal front end uh, web stuff, and uh, the desktop application is actually just an extension of the web implementation. We just hooked it up to Electron and, and ported it to desktop. Uh, yeah, so the back end, which is which is mostly where I work, if I am to work, mostly where I work, is built mostly in Elang, and it is a distributed network. It's a distributed system of uh, of nodes, and it's also backed up by a distributed data store that runs mostly on uh, that runs mostly on Cassandra, uh, but also on on Postgres. I don't know if any of this is. For people who are not uh, familiar with Erlang, can you tell us what it is and why it is the, let's say, perfect language for um, a payment for a fintech company, for example? 
Erlang is a, it's a, it's a, I would say it's a general purpose programming language, but it is it was built mostly for scalable soft real time systems that have to be available all the time. So uh, Erlang uh, was originally developed in the Ericsson. It was developed in the Ericsson Labs, and uh, and I remember the, the creator Joe Armstrong kept saying that many of their clients would build them for their would build them per second of downtime. And it would be so much money if one of their systems went down for even a second or two seconds. And because of that, they had to develop an ecosystem that was up all the time. And uh, and that is why they built Elang. So Elang is uh, it is it's built for concurrency, it's built for distribution, it's built for fault tolerance, it's built for high availability to stay up all the time. So if you have a, if you have an application or you have a requirement that number one needs to be up all the time, needs to be available all the time, requires high concurrency and uh, high availability for its users, and then Elang is probably where you'd be looking to go. Yeah. yeah. So because I, I, I remember I told, I actually mentioned about uh, how because we were in a, we are in a, an environment where. You know, there's a bit of unreliability in terms of uh, in terms of internet. We needed uh, we needed some we needed architecture that was fault tolerant that can actually understand that the user is going to get disconnected at some point. But you need to you need to you need to maintain some modicum of user experience even even if, and also you need to 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 scale based on uh, based on on demand. The, the backend for WhatsApp is actually written in, in Erlang and it allowed them to scale to like, I think, 1 billion users yes. with a very, very small team. When you, when you have situations where there are a lot of, you have to handle a lot of messages. So for messaging apps or payment systems, yeah, Erlang is, is very useful. Um, so question for you, are you exploring Elixir at all? Or what are your thoughts on Elixir, which I feel like is a, a more modern version of Erlang? Yeah, 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 we are actually exploring Elixir. We started uh, exploring it, uh, I would say probably seriously looking into it about two months ago. Um, and uh, I got, I'd like, actually, originally I was skeptical because there's always that initial inertia to, you know, that reluctance to change or reluctance to move sometimes. But uh, I have to say I was, I was, um, I'm actually impressed. There are a lot of things it makes easier if you have come from an Elang background. A lot of things that you can see making you can see becoming a bit easier. And the community is also quite good. The community is is, is good and it's everything is well defined. And uh, the tools that surround it are also are also are also very available. Many times with Elang, sometimes you may find it a bit hard to find certain tools and certain things you might end up having to build yourself. And other times the community may be the community is there, but sometimes there are certain things that you may have to dig deeper before you find a solution to. But with Elixir, the community the community is getting stronger and bigger every day, and uh, it's geared more towards web. So yeah, so it's I have to say we're actually when I was I think we with moving forward because of the intercon because it's very easy to connect the two. We will probably our newer developers will probably be using Elixir as opposed to Elan because it is easier to find developers that know Elixir and uh, than than those who do than those who know Elan. So also also for continuity, 
it is something that we are looking to to move towards. I was about to ask, so because Erlang is very performant, but it's also not very popular. So I was going to ask, how did you hire? How did you find developer developers who write Erlang? Was that difficult? Yeah, it, it was actually very difficult. And originally, why I chose Erlang, of course, aside from the other, aside from the from the advantages that I've already mentioned, the, originally why I chose it was because I knew I was going to be working with a small team. Uh, originally, it was just me and some other and some other guy who were doing the back end, so just two people. So I knew that we could get it done very quickly with with Alang. But as we were as we moved on, I quickly realized that maintainability was going to be a problem because we couldn't find any other Elang developer, and so so we had to it's so we had to mostly do uh, internships. We get a guy and he does an internship, and then he learns from there, and eventually he. He becomes a he, he becomes an Elang developer, but to get one already made was really really hard. Actually, we didn't get, and it was only me and, and my colleague who were doing Elang at the time. And uh, now all the people who do Elang were originally interned with us, and their 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 focus was on something else. But then it switched to Elang. Yeah, so it is true that it is quite hard to find developers who. I probably it's because it is it is it is um it's not it it really requires very little it requires very little uh human resource to actually develop something in Elang. So if you're building an entire back end, two people, three people, and normally enough if you're using Elang. So I guess it's a bit rare because of that. Cool. So tell me uh a bit more about the product itself. Yeah, what what exactly is your product? What is Chop Chop? Yeah, so ChopChop originally started, as I told you, as a payment platform. So what we do is uh, we sell uh, through a mobile application and a web application, we sell uh, a digital products. So things like utilities, like um, electricity, water, uh, paying for TV, uh, things like airtime, if you want to make a call, um, if you want to buy internet data, if you want to pay taxes, if you want to pay... If you want to pay, uh, if you want to pay off some, maybe so we have certain loan services which you can still pay for on the platform. So all these things you can you can uh, you can access them from our from from ChopChop. So ideally, what you do is you is you deposit money onto onto your e-wallet or your your your, your, your ChopChop account. So you can do this using the bank or using cash through an agent, or you can use the bank deposit money into the platform and once you've done that you can use this money at will to basically pay for your day-to-day needs your airtime your internet your tv electricity your water bills and things like that but the kicker is each time you pay you get some money back this up this we can do this because each of the people we each of the service providers we get these services from gives us a commission and when we get this commission, we split it with the user. So if I pay for something, say for one hundred for five hundred Uganda shillings, let's say, I will get maybe twenty shillings back as a cashback because they give us a commission, and so we share the commission with the user. So that was the original product, and that product is still is still is still is still our flagship product. But we kind of uh, branched it out a bit, and we have also what we call the merchant application. So because uh, there are some people who don't uh, who don't have smartphones, and they're used to walking to the shop 
to pay for these things. So he's used to walking to the shop outside his house or on the street to pay for his water or to buy airtime or to pay for internet and things like that. So we decided to give the person, the shopkeeper, an application of their own, which is a merchant application. So the difference between the merchant application and normal application is, is that this merchant actually has a, a wider KYC because he's expected to be stationary and he's treated as a business owner. So the rewards he gets are much bigger than those for a normal user because he's a merchant and he does more transactions than a normal user and he services a wider range of people. So you typically you find a merchant doing even more than 1,000 transactions a day. And as we did this, we, we realized that once you're in this person's shop, once you have this person's attention, there are many more services you can give him. And so we developed a point of sale for the merchant because most of the people who use the merchant application are people who have shops. So we developed for them a mobile point of sale on their phone where they can input their inventory and uh, track their sales, make sales, look at the statistics, look at their expenses, and track all sorts of things in their shop to make it easier for them to, trans to do their day-to-day -day business and to track their profit or loss at the end of the month. And so that is currently actually that is the product that is gaining a lot of traction right now with our users, aside from the digital sales that we're currently doing. Yeah. And uh, moving forward, we are also trying to introduce some smart loans or micro micro loans for these merchants to help them access, to help them buy more inventory and uh, and run their business much better. This is actually something that came directly from them. Uh, they said, we, they kept telling us, we would do a lot more transactions if we had more float, or if we had just more inventory within, our, within us, but we don't have the kind of money to do that. So based on their transaction history, we, we give them loans so that they can run their business as well. So I was quite curious about the, the tech ecosystem in, in Uganda. What, what does it look like? What are some of the big players in the, in the tech industry in Uganda? Yeah, so, so mostly, I think uh, one of the biggest issues, I think, for people looking to, to, to create startups here in Uganda is that there are no, I, wouldn't, I would call them uh, I don't know, success stories. Well, investors are always looking for a, good, for, a track, for a good track record, for something to, to assure them that this will actually work. And uh, here before maybe before like two or three four years ago there were no real success stories most of them were started and failed startups so you'd find that the tech place there were lots of actually quite a number of developers but there were no real products that were ugandan that were out there and that people were using not until uh, maybe three four or five years ago and so the good thing that has happened in the last four to five years is we've had a number of startups springing up and a number of and uh, and actually people are quite shocked that they actually they that actually they they that they're actually users because we've always known that yes there are a number of smartphone owners in Uganda but the problem has always been that those 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 smartphone users only use two applications on their phone they would probably use only WhatsApp and Facebook and they have an entire smartphone but they do not really know the full capability of the of of the of the smartphone that they're holding. And that has always been a huge barrier to break. So we've always known that the critical mass is, is probably there, but how to get the attention of the user and make them believe that this is something they need has always been a problem. 
And so that was also a problem for ChapTap initially. There was a lot of user education that had to go into getting this getting this done because we had, uh, if I was going into context, we have we had many users who would actually go to a technician to install WhatsApp on their phone. They didn't know that the Play Store existed. And it was quite shocking. Some of the, uh, as of course, as a developer, or as a tech person, you get a bit shocked at the ignorance that was in the market, that people didn't know. They had smartphones, yes, but they didn't know the capabilities of those smartphones. But now we're moving more and more, and more towards a, a situation where most of the users have the information and they, and they know the capabilities of their smartphones and they're willing to download and try out applications, which is which is really a good thing. So um, companies like SafeBorder and ChatChap have really helped this, have really helped pave the way for other applications that are going to actually come through and find it smooth, smoother sailing. So so those are like two products, right? So SafeBorder and um and ChapChap. So those are products that Ugandans are using. But would you say, or do you think there's any company that is huge, that is like a big player in, in the Ugandan tech industry? Yeah, so the big players, it depends on what you, if you, what you mean by big. <laughs> when you, if you do a quick, <laughs> a quick search and see the most used uh, websites and applications in Uganda, well, they're not Ugandan. Like I said, there are things like WhatsApp, Facebook, uh, and things like that. But the applications that are currently spring up, they are giving them a run for their money, I would say. And hopefully soon enough. And recently, the government uh, put a tax on uh, social media that is not Ugandan. So maybe that will give us an edge, <laughs> hopefully. I see. I was actually going to ask you about that. Has that affected your business in any way? So initially, the use of, uh, of this social media went down but uh, we have seen it climb steadily back up. And uh, there was no real, when we looked, when we looked at market research, there was no real correlation with that and the, the usage of other Ugandan applications. This is because there were no real replacements for those applications, at least that's what we think. So when someone fails to access WhatsApp, uh, he looks for something that is more accessible, that has the same network that he was communicating with, and it's not really there, so he's forced to find a way of continuing to use WhatsApp. So we did not see a direct correlation between that and an increased use of, say, the Ugandan applications that were there. So I, I'm, I've heard that there are a few applications that people are trying to, to build that are close to WhatsApp and things like that. But so far, I haven't heard of any real successes. But the second thing that happened was that the government banned the scratch cards. I don't know if uh, you're familiar with them. But what would happen is if someone was so if someone was loading airtime onto their phone, right, airtime to make calls and for internet and stuff like that, they would go to a shop and buy a piece of paper that would uh, that you could scratch and it would reveal a number like a voucher, reveal a voucher which you enter into your phone and then you get airtime, what we call airtime onto your telecom provider, service provider, whatever. So that was the major way that that users would get airtime on their phone or internet. That was the major way they would get in and in their phone. So the government last year scratched that. They, they they banned it. So they said, everyone, if you want airtime, you have to use mobile money or another way, digital way of getting airtime onto your phone. 
and that was a huge boost for us as chap chap we actually saw our sales even triple because of that because now users had to find a way of getting end of and when they looked around chap chap was ready for that so we found a lot of users coming to chap chap and actually even users who previously had had stopped using the application came back and uh, the sales tripled in about 2 to 3 months and we saw because of the increased focus on airtime even other sales the sales of other products also picked up because users became aware that these products were also available digitally so they also purchased those products on the platform so it was a huge boost so um of course originally in the yeah, i would say people complained and i was one of them who complained about the social media tax i said why are you taxing a product that is not is not yours really why are you putting the tax on and i actually thought it was a political thing or trying to you know silence uh, but uh, it is actually i would say a protectionist a protectionist policy and if we had been ready for that we would have seen a flock of users moving towards maybe a ugandan application and uh, and 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 that would have that would have been another success story but because the, the space wasn't ready for it like we were for example ready for the for the change in in the scratch card policy but because we were not ready for the timing wasn't right for most people they failed to pick up on those users who could not access social media at the time and now because the users were backed into a corner they now found alternatives they now use vpns and some actually pay the tax because it's not so much so you find that now the usage of social media is climbing steadily back up to the to the rate it was before they imposed the tax interesting so i actually didn't know about that uh, that angle of protectionism so i didn't know that it was ba- so the tax was on foreign social media for example i think those of us outside of uganda didn't get that angle of 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 uh, of the story interesting so so those of you the startups that were ready the ugandan startups that were operating in that space and that were ready were able to capitalize on that so like chap 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 for example people who wanted to buy credit had to use chap chap that's that's very interesting um are there developer communities in in okay i'm sure there are <laughs> so the question is rather what what are some of the developer communities in in uganda and what 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 are the activities that they that they undertake yeah so i would say the the developer communities are not we're not very mature in terms of they're not well publicized i would say they're not very old and a very set in stone but there are quite a number of uh, developer communities that do exist and there are quite a number of uh, i would say hubs and well known meetup areas that you know you go and you're going to get some help or you know you and you, you go there and you're going to find a lot of developers and if you're looking for a developer for a certain particular task you know you can go to that place and and find them uh, recently there was a a community that is kind of becoming more and more pronounced in the, in the data science space a group of people were trying to to create a community where people can understand the data that we have here in Uganda the data streams that we have and the insights and inferences that we can get from the data that we have and that's quite interesting I've actually I'm actually a member of the of that community and it's it's one of those that is growing a bit fast another one that we are trying to do 
uh, in collaboration with Safe Border is uh, Elixir and Elang. We're trying to get people more interested in developers more interested in Elixir and Elang because uh, we have found out that it's very it's uh, it's challenging to find Elang and Elixir developers here in Uganda, and it's because people do not know or are not interested, and we're trying to drum up some noise and see if we can get some developers interested in. And stuff like that because here i would say the most common language that developers know if you ask them what is the language you're most comfortable in they would probably say php and then java probably so those are the two most common things so if most applications are built with a uh, with strong php developers and java developers but not really beyond that so i would say there's a bit of uh, this it has been narrowed in that area, and so we're trying to see if we can diversify it and make it uh, a bit more 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 open, so that more different technologies can can thrive. Mm-hmm. Great. So, as a, as a CTO, I'm sure you have to keep your eyes open on uh, technologies trends and and exciting technologies that are that are coming up what are some of the technologies that you've you've seen recently that you are excited about so the, the thing that i'm most excited about uh, right now is uh, i would say is uh, is uh, is data science machine learning and ai it is uh, it is where i'm seeing a lot of uh, movement and also where i'm seeing a lot of uh, relevance to chapchap as a company because we have found that we have a lot of data information which we do not use and yet may be useful. And we have a lot of information which we can draw inferences from and probably we can make a better, better decisions with. And also there are certain parts of our application like our user chat that probably can be done automatically say by an AI robot or something like that. And so technologies around that area are something that we are closely paying attention to and doing our own our own sort of uh, mini research into of course uh, we don't have the resources to to go to go to make big strides but it is something that we're very conscious about um recently we actually uh, our our we 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 put in place our our fraud detection module was very was, I would say, very manual. It was not uh, very sophisticated. It was not uh, something that was, uh, it was a very manual process in detecting a fraudulent behavior of the platform. And so we recently transitioned it to a more, to a more intelligent, uh, more intelligent module, I would say. And we put a lot of, uh, so put a lot of, uh, I would say, machine learning and a lot of uh, data, data driven, data driven aspects into into, into detecting fraudulent activity on the platform. And we see this as a first step into, into kind of moving the company forward because we want the company to be a company that makes, we want the, the people who make the decisions to make the informed decisions, to make decisions when they know their users, when they know where the market is heading, when they know, when they have different insights and inferences based on the information that we have been receiving. And that is not something that we're currently doing so what is something that we are slowly moving towards? And I would say for me, that is an aspect of technology that, that mostly that has been interesting me most recently. So what do you do when you're not coding? What, what are your hobbies? When you're not writing software, what do you do? 
Uh, so I would say aside from software, the thing that takes my time the most is probably football or soccer, I would say. So I'm a huge I'm a huge football fan and I, I play some football over the weekend and I watch a lot of, of soccer. Aside from that, I, I, I also swim. Yeah. And my, my listeners are probably tired of hearing this, but as, as software engineers, as people who spend most of their day sitting in front of a computer, it's extremely important that we have other hobbies that are not computer related. And it's also important that we take care of our bodies because you you may find yourself in a situation where in, in five, ten years, you start noticing problems with your back or, or other other uh, health issues. So it's very important to start thinking about that now and, and take care of your body. Um, is there anything that you're working on either either on the side or as part of Chap Chap? Anything that you that you're working on that you want to share with uh, the rest of the community? Uh, well, yeah, well, okay. More recently, we have been working on a, on an interesting pro- okay product that we believe, or at least I believe, is is a bit interesting. We are trying to find a way, or we have found a way, I would say, of converting the user's credit or airtime into a form of currency, into a currency form or something like that. So what we want is we want users to exchange their their airtime or credit for other products. Like say, if I want to pay for my water and I have say 1,000 Uganda shillings worth of airtime on my phone, I can use that to pay for my water, my water bill or to pay for my electricity bill. And if I want to convert that airtime back to to cash, I can also find a way of doing that. So that is something that we are we are we are trying to develop something that can be an alternative currency to the to the currencies we have right now. And we have been pushed in this direction because uh, the current options for receiving money and paying money and the current currency options that we have are not uh, very. They're not very convenient for the user and sometimes a bit expensive in their transfer rates and things like this. And with something like airtime, if I have airtime on my phone and I'm able to use it to trade to as a currency of sorts, uh, it would be much more convenient for the user, at least we believe that. So that is something that uh, we are looking forward to, 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 to pushing out. Interesting. So how do you determine the value? So if, if I bought, let's say, a $5 voucher, uh, scratch card, how do you determine its actual value in Ugandan shillings? Because I, I assume if a $5 scratch card is not worth uh, five, five, $5 in, in Ugandan shillings, right? Because all the people in the value chain have to take their commission and all of that. Yeah. So 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 normally what happens... Is if if I buy if a user buys say like say okay what we call five dollars worth, so it is now virtually inserted on their on their account in terms of their, their account they have with the telecom provider. So if they have five dollars worth and they want to say pay three dollars worth of uh, of uh, of their water bill or their electricity bill, they would have to transfer that three dollars from their from their uh, credit account with the telecom to ChapChap's e-wallet and then make the payment. So originally, of course, eventually, there will be a cost attached to that transfer. 
but it will not be anywhere near the current costs for transferring, say, for example, mobile money onto your ChapChap e-wallet. So, but but it is possible for you to transfer the entire value of that uh, $5 onto your ChapChap currency. And this is possible because when you transfer that credit to ChapChap, we are able to resell it to another user. So, yeah, so it is it is possible that even if you give us that $5 and a few cents for the transfer, we're able to reconvert the entire value to cash because we are able to sell it to another user because we have the demand for it. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> okay, James, this this was very interesting. This uh, I think this this was the first time that I was having a guest that's not from West Africa. In all our previous episodes, our guests were either from, from Nigeria or from Ghana. And I made an effort, like I tried very hard to try to find people outside of of Nigeria and, and Ghana. So I'm really excited that you were able to come on the show. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your story and for telling us about Chap Chap. It was my pleasure. This was another episode of the African Developers Podcast. If you enjoyed it and would like to hear more, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. We are available on Google Podcasts, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocketcast, and every other podcasting app out there. For any feedback or comment, you can reach us on Twitter at AfroDevPodcast.